So, so if you believe the purpose of argumentation is to win, uh, I, I think you, you're having a faulty view of argumentation. So the definition I would offer is that argumentation is ultimately you ex examining beliefs in community. Hey everyone, welcome back to Absurdity. This week's episode is going to be about arguing well, how we can argue better with each other, and maybe redefining what arguing is. Now, Anthony and I, uh, we had to record this episode twice because the first time that we, we discussed it, uh, we had some audio issues. And so um, I do hope that you find some value in this conversation. I actually believe that the second time that we recorded it, we did it even better than the first and I'm really excited to have this conversation a part of the podcast. Anthony Bosman has been a friend of mine for a number of years. He actually uh, kind of got really close to my older brother. He graduated high school with him. And so I, I became friends with him through that. But he's always someone who's challenged my beliefs. He's always someone who's challenged my thinking and challenged me to think better. He's well-reasoned. He's articulate. And so I think you'll find a lot of value in what he has to share on the cast. So really excited to have him on. I do want to quickly let you know of a couple things. First of all, if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or any of the podcast feeders or, that you can find on the internet. Uh, you can just search The Absurdity or The Absurdity with Ryan Becker and you will find us. Uh, secondly, if you want to subscribe and, and you want to uh, take in this information through iTunes. I'm going to ask that you please, please, please leave a review. Uh, reviews help me out a lot, and and just feedback in general helps me make this podcast better. I've invested um, a lot of time, energy, and money into this, and I don't want to be wasting my time. And so, any feedback that I can get to make this cast better, to improve it, whether it's the way I interview, whether it's the volume, whatever parts of this podcast you want to either compliment me on or constructively critique. Both are fine with me, so please, please, please give me your feedback so that I can keep improving and making this podcast better for you, the listener, to be able to enjoy. So I'm going to let this podcast play out, or this 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 interview play out with Anthony Bosman. I do hope you enjoy it, and if you want to be a guest on The Absurdity, then I welcome you to email me, ryan180becker at gmail.com. You can go ahead and send me an email and let me know what you want to talk about. I typically uh, let my guests decide what it is they want to talk about. So let me know, and I'll look forward to hearing from you. Without further ado, here is my interview with Anthony Bosman. All right. Hey, everyone. I am here with Anthony Bosman a friend of mine from back in Orlando, Florida, though neither of us are there anymore. And I'm really excited. Today, we're going to be talking about polarization and, and how we argue, both online, in person, anywhere that you argue, and, and how you converse through difficult topics. So, uh, Anthony, why don't you go ahead and, and tell our listeners uh, about yourself? Who are you? Where are you? What do you do? All that good stuff. Awesome. Well, first of all, thank you, Ryan, for having me on. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while now. And I'm excited to be joining you today. I, um, like you said, we went to high school together in Orlando. From there, I went off to California for college, then to Texas for graduate school. 
and now I serve as an assistant professor at Andrews University in Southwest Michigan. Awesome, man. I, I am, I'm super excited to have you on, not just because I'm excited, like I've been excited for every other guest, but I'm excited because you you have been someone that's consistently pushed me in not just what I think about, but how I think about it. So I think this is an excellent topic to have you on for. So in in your own words, how would you describe or introduce kind of what we're talking about today? Yeah, so I think the overarching theme is just this idea of polarization, which you've hit on a few times before. Um, if you look at the data um, consistently, we see that for instance, if you look at political parties, those who lean conservative or lean liberal or progressive, um, not only are they uh, becoming further apart from each other, so those who are conservative becoming more conservative, those who are progressive becoming more con- progressive, but the overlap between these is also disappearing. So you have less in the middle and you have a movement away to, to the two extremes, if you will. And so this is a phenomenon not just happening in the political realm, but it's happening on social issues. It's happening, um, you might even say, on theological issues within the church body. And so there's a number of different um, spheres of society where we see this polarization occurring. But what I'm really interested in is the role of argument in polarization. So my background is, I, you know, I, I'm a mathematician. I study mathematics. I'm a professor of mathematics here at Andrews. And so... Mathematics, at the heart of it, is a discipline that is built up on argument. For the last 2,500 years, we've figured out a way to argue together as a community in order to develop good mathematics. And I mentioned that just because when you then move to these other spheres, be it social or political or religious, I'm interested in, is there a way that we can also learn to argue well in these spheres? a way in which in community we can present our best ideas in a way that that's not just a shouting match or not just uh, trying to dominate over the other, but actually presenting ideas that are productive, that, that moves us towards the better society or towards the, the better uh, understanding of truth or whatever it may be that our goal is. Gotcha. Okay. So that I think that's a really good introduction into it. I think that that kind of gives us an idea because I think, I think the way we argue has negatively impacted the polarization, right? I think it's further increased it because we've been able to, or we haven't been able to find as much common ground or find as much a relation with one another. We further kind of entrench ourselves in our current beliefs. Um, so I think this is actually really important to talk about. Um, let me ask you this, how how did this subject become important to you? Was it just a result of kind of being a mathematician and engaging in arguments like this where there is a clear, correct answer most of the time, with at least with the math that I know. Obviously, there's theoretical stuff, but um, or um, is there something that happened in your life that gave you an, a passion for this kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So certainly um, in mathematics, you know, learn, just being engaged in a community that's all about argument. And almost to like the, the Vulcan state of, you know, you're giving a talk and you can expect to be corrected and you just have to learn to um, dig in and appreciate this kind of culture. But at the same time, I think having transversed a number of different types of groups. So like I mentioned earlier, I went to undergraduate in California, um, just south of San Francisco in the Bay Area. And then I was doing my graduate studies in Texas and so right there, you have pretty diverse um, groups of individuals you're going to meet in those two settings, but then also differences between 
having friend groups that are very progressive or friend groups that are very conservative or attending different churches that may lean different ways on the theological spectrum, if you will. And so in all these different spheres of my life, coming up against different groups and, and having good, close, intimate relationships in these groups, but noticing that the way they viewed each other and the way they talked about each other uh, wasn't always the healthiest foundation for productive argumentation. Hmm. That's, I think that's, that's, that's pretty valid. I mean, I, I've been, I've spent most of my time in the Southeast, but in, in, in all of that traveling and I have been out to the West coast, but in that, in all that traveling, I've, I've come across a, a whole spectrum of thought, mainly theological. Cause I'm, I'm mostly involved in church work, obviously, but just in general on Facebook as well. And just in college, I mean, you just meet people from everywhere, right? So there are some people that think the whole arguments are all the arguments are a waste of time because they come from a culture where it's not even important or, you know, you, you come across this whole spectrum. And I know the older I get, and I don't mean this in a way of like, oh, I'm so old and so wise. It's just you, you kind of realize that there is a spectrum, right? There is more gray area. And I don't mean I, I, I don't think I mean gray area like, oh, everyone is sort of right. And truth is a combination of all of our ideas. But I mean, gray area is just like there are other ways to think about things. And there are other opinions out there that I didn't even realize were opinions or even existed. Or if I knew they existed, maybe I didn't realize they had the following they did. So I I can relate to you on, on, on that for sure. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Or Yeah, when, when you talk about the gray, I think it's important that we do clarify, as you were, that um, this is not a discussion to say that you know, there are two sides to every issue and both sides are somewhat correct and you should always take a moderate position or you should never favor one side or another or anything along those lines. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue for some kind of relativism or anything like this. Um, but simply the fact that it's important to be able to engage with the other side. And there's a number of, of reasons for this. Um, I think John Stuart Mill put it best when he said, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. And so even if, if refusing to engage with the other side doesn't even allow you to dig very deeply into your own understanding. I've definitely found this with religious dialogue as I engage in dialogue with um, those of other religious worldviews or backgrounds. It helps me to become a richer understanding of my own religious commitments. But in addition to simply coming to a better understanding of where I stand and what my side of the issue is, at the core of this, I want to make the case that productive argumentation is actually possible. And not just on like the small issues like should I choose an iPhone or an Android, right, where there's clearly a correct answer in Android, but, but, but on, on the oh, deep okay. issues. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but on the deep issues, you know, the, the issues that, that really polarize us, that really um, divide us. So I think that th there needs to be some work to make this case because – you turn on the news, you turn on like CNN or Fox News or wherever you stand on the divide, right? You turn on the news and, and there's this consistent theme of they bring on two talking heads, two, two experts from two different sides. And invariably, it always ends up with them shouting at each other, with one, you know, trying to dominate over the other. And by the time you've seen this happen, you know, time and time again, you might be left with the impression, well, argumentation cannot be productive. Right, like, 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 what's the value in arguing? What's the, what's the value in engaging with these deep questions? Let me just retreat back to, to my side. Let them be on their side, and we'll just see, you know, who wins out in the end. Mm. But, but I believe that's that's a false impression. 
So there's a couple of things that I think we'll go over today, a couple of ways in which we can be intentional in arguing to make sure that it is productive. It's not destructive like that. And I think if we really take these things to heart and we begin to practice argumentation in this way, we can begin to see that, in fact, argumentation can be productive. It's possible to actually change your mind on something or change someone else's mind on something, or at the very least, together move to a, to a more nuanced or more appreciative view of, of the other and where they stand. So I, I definitely believe that there's value in argumentation. Hmm. I, and I agree. And I think, I think it's really important for us to dive into what it means to argue. I, you know, I don't think that you and I are going to be setting up a new definition for it or setting up something new um, and revolutionary in argumentation. I think you and I are kind of recapturing what is what seems like a lost art. And I and and I say that because really we've never throughout history had the ability to have conversations on the scale that we have them now with the immediacy and with the audiences that we currently have. Only within the last 20 years have we had social media, and even only really in the last five to 10 years has that become something really significant. What used to happen is, you know, before you had the ability to just post something immediately, you would watch something, and you would react privately, and then the, you know, you'd, you'd tell your talk with your friends about it more and more, but you'd, you'd have more time to sit on your thoughts. Now, Facebook is a click away, and you go from zero to 100 so quickly, you know, you go from taking something in to posting about it so quickly that there really isn't a lot of time for uh, thinking it through. And we get ourselves, I think, into trouble because we're so quick to respond to something. We're so quick to respond. We, we get on the president for not being quick enough to respond or being too quick to respond. Um, we, we get on each other for the same thing. And, and, and I think there's, there's need now to really evaluate how we have these arguments, how we are talking to each other. Because in this sphere, I don't think that conversation has taken place. I don't think we have addressed how we argue with the current modern technology that we have, with the avenues of conversation that we have. Yeah, that's wonderful. So maybe one thing would be helpful to begin with is just offering some kind of definition of arguing. And I I believe one kind of definition that that you may have in your mind is, is perhaps it's something like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to dominate the other. I'm trying to, you know, use the best rhetoric or make the strongest case to to defeat the other. And, and there may be some element of that, but I think largely that's 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 an that's a mischaracterization argument. So so if you believe the purpose of argumentation is to win, uh, I, I think you you're having a faulty view of argumentation. So the definition I would offer is that argumentation is ultimately you ex- examining beliefs in community. So here you have these beliefs and I have these beliefs and beliefs about things that really matter, beliefs about things like justice and liberty and equality and truth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come into community and we're going to examine these beliefs together. And argumentation is a, is a format, a structure in which I can offer the, most, the best reasons, the most compelling reasons for why I believe what I believe, but I'm exposing those beliefs so now they're open to critique. And so now the purpose of argumentation is, is it not simply for me to win, but all of us involved in this process are interested in pursuing truth. And so examine our beliefs together for the purpose of pursuing truth. Yeah, and I, and I think if that's the goal, you're really seeking to make sure that everyone wins, right? Like you're, you're seeking for, for both you and the other person to win because you've both become closer to truth as a result of your discussion. If you've done it well, I guess would be the, the caveat there, but... Um, 
And I love that the examining uh, beliefs through community or, or, or in community. I, you know, I think of, it actually makes me think of the New Testament. You see a lot of times where Jesus is questioned by Pharisees or lawyers or religious leaders, and he, he usually responds with a question, right? They'll ask him a question and then he'll ask a question. When, when the lawyer approaches him right before he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he says, what must I do uh, to, or, or yeah, what must I do to, to gain eternal life? And he says, well, what is written in the law? And I think there was this this idea that yeah they're going to explore these these beliefs and and the law together by asking questions of each other to come to consensus rather than simply what is a, what is two plus two and then I give you the answer of four we explore it together and figure it out so I you know I I think this is great I think I, and that's why I say I think we're recapturing it because this is something that's been present throughout history we've just never had to adapt it this way before. So I think that's a really good definition. Um, I think yeah. So maybe awesome. one question someone might have is, well, why do I need community to examine my beliefs? And I think it's easy to fall into this false notion that, well, you know, most people aren't very smart, and I'm pretty clever compared to them, right? I mean, you can look at people post things. You can come with this idea that, hey, you know, I, I, I'm the reasonable one. I'm the rational one. Why? What can they possibly contribute to my thinking? And, and I, I would say that this is a very dangerous. Um, viewpoint to fall into. And it's dangerous for a lot of reasons. But one reason it's particularly dangerous is just we have overwhelming evidence that we don't, are not very good at reasoning, especially now when we do it on our own. It's not that we reason carefully and thoughtfully, and then we come and derive some conclusion from that, and based on that conclusion, we form our beliefs. But rather, the opposite is, is true. We, we tend to begin with some intuition. We begin to begin with some belief that we suspect is true. And then Maybe it's a belief we want to be true. So then we ask, can I believe it? And so we go out and we try and find any evidence to support the belief we want to be true. And you find, you know, you search, you find all kinds of results, one or two support this belief. So then you feel justified in holding on to this belief. On the contrary, if you come across a belief you don't want to be true, you, you have some, some gut reaction against it. Of, mm, I, I don't think that should be true. I, I don't want that to be true. Then instead of asking, can I believe it? You raise the standard of evidence and you ask instead, must I believe it? Is it necessary for me to believe it? And so then what you do is you go out and you try and see, can I find any evidence at all that opposes this view? And if you find any evidence at all that opposes this view, then you say, okay, well, now I'm justified in not believing this. So we tend to use different standards of evidences ourselves when constructing our worldview and constructing our ideologies, when constructing uh, p political or whatever kinds of opinions, simply to adapt the beliefs that we're most inclined or most desiring to create. And so what happens when we argue, when we come into community, especially a community that contains those who, who disagree, is, is it helps resolve some of that motivated reasoning that we have, some of the confirmation, that we, confirmation bias that we suffer from. Because now we're saying, okay, hey, you, you who are really critical of this belief, do your best to challenge it. Because I realized that maybe I wasn't critical enough in my beliefs. And so what argumentation is actually allowing us to do is to expose our beliefs in community and allow others, especially those who are most critical, to offer some kind of feedback, some kind of critique on those beliefs, and maybe reveal some blind spots that we are suffering from. Mm. Okay, so yeah, and I, I, and I think that's a, that's a really good answer to that question. 
Um, I do think that that being in community naturally helps us reason better because we're exposed to things that we wouldn't have been exposed to, I think, otherwise, or wouldn't have allowed ourselves to even be exposed to, right? There are people that I argue with or that I talk to that take in completely different sources than I do on sometimes the same topic. And I won't even touch those sources on occasion because they're not the ones I usually go to. And so I may miss part of the puzzle as a result. Um, and so I, I think that, that um, that's super valid. It would be the so. So I would... this idea of sources then brings up another thing, though, because it highlights that the kind of communities that we ex- expose our beliefs to and engage with the beliefs of others in really matters. In particular, we need to be involved in communities where people have opinions and beliefs and experiences and, and, and information different from our own. So, for instance, if you look back at this last political election, there were a number of analysts that looked at um, social media, Twitter, for example. And, and the users on Twitter, and they found overwhelmingly those who were supporters of the candidate Trump would primarily be following each other. And those who were supporters of Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton primarily followed each other. And there wasn't very much interaction between them. And so there's this, this effect, this echo chamber effect that happens where we tend to naturally be it because of where we live or because of you know, the, those who we happen to spend the most time with, we, we tend to be with those, not, not exclusively, but we tend to spend the most amount of time with those who think similarly to ourselves. And so one of the first principles of, of if you really want to expose your beliefs and, and get some good feedback and, and pursue truth, one of the first principles is you need to seek out your opposite. You need to go out intentionally, engage with individuals who have a different set of beliefs than yourself. Individuals with a different set of perspectives, a different set of background that, than you yourself have. Mm. Ah, that's powerful. I, and I think that's, that's, I think that's like the hardest first step for a lot of people because I think we've equated disagreement with disrespect in a lot of ways. If you disagree with me or if you tell me no or if you tell me I'm wrong or you think that I'm wrong, suddenly you're disrespecting me. And so we have a hard time having those conversations. And that's even with me. Like, I, I, know, I can see it in my own life, the times that I've surrounded myself with people who think the same. It just is that way. Um, and so I think, I think part of this in seeking out your opposite, it teaches you uh, how to be agreeably disagreeable. <laughs> Does that, I, I don't even know if that term makes sense. But basically, you're disagreeing in a way that neither of you is feeling disrespected. Um, and you yeah, no, there's a deep sense in which this is not natural. So we have some evidence that yeah. when you come up against ev- when you come up against information that challenges, especially your core beliefs, especially things that you know your core sense of justice or your core sense of equality or or this notion of liberty, whatever things that are really core, right? Things that resonate with your experience. When you come up against information or arguments that challenge that, it's it's uncomfortable. Like, like there's there's a yeah. biological mechanism where it's uncomfortable. And when you're able to dismiss those opposing points of view, there's a dopamine release in your brain. There's this reward center of your brain goes off. And so in some sense, we're hardwired to try and dismiss other points of view, to surround ourselves with those that are similar. So there is a sense in which we're almost fighting against nature in doing this. But I believe the fact that we are able to do this, the fact that we're rational, the fact that we're able to, to, to engage in dialogue shows that there's, this is possible. You know, we're able to do this. It's just there's a level of uncomfort that comes with it. Yeah. Nope. I definitely agree. I, you know, that's something I struggle with, too, even with this podcast is how do I give, um, how do I give ample time for beliefs or otherwise that I, that I beliefs, uh, opinions, perspectives, whatever they may be, 
that I may not fully agree with. And I've had guests on here already that that I don't fully agree with or that I that are I do, I agree with, you know, with with some nuance, but um, you know, that's hard. It's really hard because you almost feel like you almost feel like by listening to something that you disagree with or by allowing that into your life, you're almost saying it's okay. And I don't think that's I don't think that's it. I don't think you're saying it's okay, especially if it's something that you really, whether it's racism or otherwise, I don't think it's saying that it's okay. I think it's saying, listen, I value you as a person and I want to grow together with you in whatever the topic is that we're discussing together. Um, yeah, it raised that, that raised an interesting question of do we need to engage in discussion on every kind of you know, mm-hmm. argument? Do we need to have everything open to discussions, everything needs to be open to examination? Because you do have people, you know, radicals who are you know, uh, neo-Nazis or whomever with the, these viewpoints. And you're like, do we really need to have this discussion? And, and so there probably is a legitimate place for us to think through critically and, and assess, okay, is there some boundary to what we need to be actively examining? Uh, I would just caution that when we make that boundary, not, not to say that there shouldn't be one, but when we make one, we should be pretty conservative in what we label to be off-limits. Because it's precisely the beliefs that we cherish and that we hold dear and those values. These are the ones we need to be criticized. These are the ones we need differing voices on. Because if we don't have those differing voices, there would be no possibility of revision. There'd be no possibility of us coming back and maybe thinking through things more carefully. Mm. And so while there probably are some, some boundary markers of, hey, we don't have to have this discussion in the social sphere. We don't have to have this discussion um, you know, as a society, I would be very conservative in, in the kinds of things that we put off limits. And when I say conservative, I don't mean politically. I just mean I, I would be very um, limited in, in those in those um, items I said are taboo for discussion. Almost like you would be hesitant or reluctant to put up. That's right. A, a, That's a right. Boundary. Yeah. I, I the way that I always teach boundaries or talk about boundaries, I always say that they're a last resort. Right. Like. They're the thing that now there. I mean, there are some areas of your life that they're not a last resort, right? Going into a relationship, you should know what your boundaries are. But I think (laughs) in general, when you're setting boundaries um, to protect yourself um, from what you might perceive as a threat, um, you should try to engage in any other avenue of peacemaking prior to setting up that boundary. And I think this is one of those ways as one of those areas that it would apply to. Um, Yeah, and I think there's also something to be said that. Sometimes when we put things off limits because we think they're just so extreme, there's no need to engage with them, that can sometimes actually power those things further, right? So sometimes bringing things out into the light and exposing them to public discourse and allowing them to be defeated through the power of argument, sometimes that, that can you know, be a much more powerful way to destroy these ideas. Like sometimes we're afraid to give something a platform and, and there's a reasonable fear there. But at the same time, when we expose things to the power of argument, I believe that that we actually can come to some resolution. Right? That reasonable people looking on will be able to see. Okay, you know, there's nothing. They're not hiding anything. There's no reason they're putting this off topic. Um, this really is an unreasonable view, and that's exposed when these views enter into dialogue and argumentation. Mm. Man, this is so valuable. I love this. I love this a lot, and I think this is challenging. Like this has been challenging for me already. Um, but I think also for those listening, this is something that I think really takes a lot of introspection. Um, so let's 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 keep going. And then then so we've talked about seeking out your op- opposite. We've talked about um, the value of of getting out of your echo chamber and of not just seeking to reason in a vacuum, 
But what are some other ways that you think we can argue better or argue well? Yeah, so there are a number of logical fallacies or, or dialectical fallacies that one ought to avoid. So these are just ways of arguing poorly. And so um, I, I can name a couple. One, a very common one is something called the straw man fallacy. And so what this is, is your opponent takes some position, and instead of you responding to this position, instead you respond to a caricature of it, a weakened version of that position. So, um, you know, a crazy hypothetical, let's say you're opponent says that uh, people over the age of 18 should not be required to wear seatbelts. You know, maybe they make some kind of argument from liberty that this person has the freedom not to wear a seatbelt. And instead of you responding to this, this argument from liberty, which, which maybe, you know, maybe there's some, some weight to that argument. Instead, you respond, you simply say, this person doesn't want anyone to wear seatbelts. Um, he's going to be killing our children. You know, you, you uh, respond to a weakened version of the argument, a misrepresentation of the argument. And the reason that this is so insidious to argumentation is it goes against the very purpose of argumentation. If we're arguing to examine our beliefs and arrive at truth, that means we actually need to be engaging with each other's beliefs. And what straw man does is instead of actually engaging with the belief, it engages with a weakened form of the belief simply in order to defeat it. So this is moving from a model of argumentation where we're arguing to arrive at truth to a model where I simply want to win. I simply want to show that I have the better position than this other person. So straw man is one version uh, that, that can really um, move an argument from being productive to just being destructive or just being uh, non-productive. A similar version, although maybe a little bit more nuanced, is something called a weak man argument. So in a weak man or a weak man fallacy. So in a weak man fallacy, you actually do engage with one of your opponent's stated views, but you only engage with the weakest ones. So maybe your opponent gave you know, two or three or four or five reasons why people over the age of 18 should not wear seatbelts. And you know, maybe one of them was really bad, like if you're over the age of 18, you should not be required to wear a seatbelt because it's uncomfortable or something like this. It's not a very good argument. So you, know, you could respond and you could show why this is a poor argument. But if you do not also respond to his other arguments and you simply say, ha, look, I've showed you belief is wrong because I respond to this one, your weakest argument. Well, now you haven't actually engaged with the strongest or best arguments. So again, you fail to properly examine his beliefs. You fail to properly critique his beliefs. And so this would be another type of fallacy which would be destructive to argumentation. Man, I, the weak man one, I'm so used to uh, all the time. As a pastor, even when I get in discussions on Facebook and people will pick at like one line or one word or one phrase uh, that they will cling to, and that will be what the tool that they use to try and dismantle your whole argument. And you know, one of the things I like to do, and, and, and I need to start doing more, is simply saying, okay, you're right, that may have been my weakest argument, so let's pretend like that one didn't exist. What about the rest? Um, and just like giving them that, that kind of olive branch and then saying, all right, but you still need to deal with these other three or these other four points that you haven't outright disagreed with. And cause typically when someone is laying out points like that, they don't always build on each other. Sometimes they're four or five independent points. And if you're going to respond, you should respond to all of them. And, um, so I, I think that that one, Man, people do it with sermons, people do it with comments, articles, podcasts, anything that you can imagine, people will will take the... I see the weak man one so, so often. Yeah, so I think what that's an example of 
is someone is looking to paint their opponent in an uncharitable light. So, so they're saying, is there anything I can find to pick apart to make this person look ridiculous or make them look silly or make them look ill-informed? And so, again, this, this isn't good for argument. Well, what's happening is instead of fairly engaging with their beliefs and examining their beliefs, they're simply trying to make the other person look small or look unqualified. Um, so so what, what we do to protect against this is something called the principle of charity. And, and this is really difficult because sometimes when you're in the heat of an argument, your interest is in winning. You know, you care about your point. You care about the, the, the thing that's there's something driving you, some sense of justice or some sense of, of equality or some sense of liberty or whatever it may be. There's something driving you. So you really care about your point and you really want to win. But the principle of charity says make sure that you're continually extending the most charitable view possible to your opponent and his or her positions. So, yeah, maybe, you know, they misspoke. Maybe they said something a little bit off. But, but can you interpret that expression in such a way so it actually is a, a decent argument? You could paint it to look ridiculous. You could paint them to look silly. You could paint them to look mean-spirited or, or any of these things. But can you be as gracious as possible to make them seem as reasonable as possible? Because if you really care about arriving at truth, if you really care about having these beliefs examined, you want to engage with the strongest arguments. You don't want to engage with these weak things that are easily dismissed. And so the principle of charity is a way in which we guard ourselves against falling into petty name calling or any of these other things that often happen. So let me ask you this, because we've talked about arriving at truth, right? And this is kind of a little off topic here, but it, mm, it just great. came to my mind. Um, you've talked about arriving at truth, right? What about if I go into a conversation or an argument and I say, yeah, I have the truth and I'm trying to simply convince you, right? So this isn't about us examining our beliefs together, but I'm trying to teach you or tell you, right? So how can I exercise charity if that's the mindset that I've come in with this? I'm. It's not that we're both arriving at truth. It's that I'm already there and I'm trying to pull you along. Oh, man, I think it's perfectly legitimate. I think it's, it's a perfectly legitimate function of argumentation on the one hand that you are trying to convince the other person of your view. I mean, if you didn't have good reasons for believing what you believed, right, why would you believe it? And so you don't go into an argument with, oh, this is just my guess or my suspicion. Typically, we argue about things or we ought to argue about things that we're passionate about. And we do believe we have good reasons for believing these things. But, but I think there are a few other things that come into this that justify why we should st still extend the principle of charity. One of them is we realize, although we have really good reasons for believing what we believe, is the possibility that we may be wrong. Maybe not completely wrong, right? We, we know we're onto something here, but maybe there's a level of nuance or level of complexity that we're missing, right? Maybe they still have something to offer that can enrich our view. Mm. And so there's still reason for us to realize, hey, I'm onto something true. You know, I'm, I'm convinced of this, my experience, my reasoning. I know that there's something true that I'm saying, but maybe there's more yet. Maybe there's still um, something else we can learn here. Um, at the same time, another reason to exercise the principle of charity is it just makes you more compelling. When speaking with someone, when trying to engage with them, they're going to respect you a whole lot more if you're showing that respect to them. Right? They're going to find you a whole lot more compelling if you don't simply devolve to name-calling or, or picking on things because they're going to see that's not fair behavior. But if you treat them with the utmost charity and respect, they're going to find your arguments a lot more compelling. And, and I would say the last reason we ought to especially exercise the principle of charity just as humans or especially as Christians is that the person you're engaging with is a person. 
they have value. And so independent of their ideas and independent of the exchange of ideas and desire to arrive at truth, this, this, the practice of extending dignity to the other. Uh, Paul puts it, he says, to esteem the other better than yourself. So that means yeah. you assume that they're the, the most rational, they're the most thoughtful, they're the most um, well-researched uh, individual that you could possibly assume, right? Maybe they say a few things that could make you suspicious, but you go, okay, I'm going to do my best I can to give a charitable interpretation to these things. And so I would say for the sake of arriving at a, a fuller or more complex view yourself, for the sake of being more, more compelling, and for the sake of just treating them with dignity, we, we ought to always exercise the um, principle of charity, especially at those times that we're convinced that we're on the side of the right. Mm. Well, thank you for that. I, I, I love how well-reasoned that was, and I 100% agree. I think there is certainly in any argument the need for uh, greater humility. Uh, to say, hey, you know what? Maybe one of my sources wasn't the best one I used, and you're right to point that out, so let me find a better one. Um, just the willingness to say, hey, I was wrong in this part of what I'm saying. Um, that can build trust. And it doesn't just build trust and respect from the person you're talking to, right? But there's, especially when we're on Facebook, YouTube, or otherwise, there's always a third person. That third person is whoever's watching it, whoever's reading it even if they don't like the comment or the video, even if they don't respond, right? They're still reading it and taking it in. And there's there's a need to pay attention to that third party. And they're going to pay attention not only to the, val the, the validity of your argument, right? Your credibility. But your credibility is staked on how you treat the other side. If you are likable, it's a lot harder to disagree with you. And that's that is that is definitely a tool that I think can be used. While I, you know, while when talking about reason and facts and logic, it's a lot harder to find that place of emotion. We are emotional beings, and so by being likable, that can help win people to your side. If Jesus was a healer and did all these amazing things, but was a total jerk, he wouldn't have near the followers that he had. But he wasn't, and, and so I think there's this idea of being kind. Um, and being likable by being respectful. So let's go into this again. Let's add, add a little bit more to this. What are some other ways that you think we can argue better? What are some other maybe fallacies or, or other ways uh, that, that we can look to argue better with each other? Yeah, so a, a big one is realizing the power within your own perception of the world uh, of these meta narratives of these big stories that we have. So when you stand within any group, an ideological group, a religious group, a political group, whatever it may be, even a cultural group, we come to the world with a particular interpretive lens. And what happens is that lens is going to automatically, I may say bias the way we view things. So you come to some incident, you view it in a particular way and you know, you maybe uh, see some kind of correlation or you see some kind of connection and someone standing with a different lens may see it very differently. And so I, I believe this describes at the heart of it, you know, you, if you dig into the, the big lenses, the, the big um, narratives that conservatives or liberals have, it explains how they can be looking at the same set of data and come at totally different conclusions, right? And mm. so part of arguing well is recognizing the role of these things. 
And so what I would say is when you guys are talking, sometimes you, you, know, you get into this place where it feels like you have a stalemate. And what it really helps then is to try and dig into, okay, what are some of the presuppositions? What are some of the, the things coloring how we view this data? What, what is the big story you're bringing to the table? What's the big story I'm bringing to the table? And, and how is that influencing our interaction? Mm. So, okay, so maybe an example of this, and maybe you can correct me on this, right? So if we're talking about gun control, right? There might, be someone, there, there might be someone who grew up in a household where guns only caused violence and terror. Yes. Um, maybe they had a family member that was shot. Maybe they lived in an area where gang violence was present. People were shot on a daily basis, right? So they're saying, no, I don't want guns in my life. I don't want guns, period. And then there's someone else who grew up with guns recreationally, fired them, trained in gun safety, responsible gun use, all of that, right? And they're saying, yeah, guns are perfectly fine. You know, it's the people who are the problem. And and so, you know, there there's some of that that background definitely, I think, plays in to how we have those discussions. What do you think? I, and I'm not saying like we have to get into gun control, but I think that's just an example. No, that's a great example because in this instance, it's not just that they have a, a perception about guns, but they have a perception about those on the other side. So those who, you know, enjoy the, their gun rights and enjoy having their guns, you know, there, there tends to be a widespread perception that, you know, progressives or those on the other side want to take all their guns away, right? And so if that's, if that's the big belief that they have, that these people want to take all my guns away, then the moment the people on the other side start asking for just an inch, they're asking for, well, can we just have some regulation here? Can we just, you know, they're hearing, oh, they're trying to make headway to the end goal of taking all my guns away, right? Hmm. While those on the other side of this divide, they have the perception that these people are totally unreasonable. They're not willing to you know, accept any regulation at all. They want us all running around shooting guns. And so they come from the, this perception that, well, it's impossible to get these people to, to come to any kind of, any kind of uh, progress, any kind of, of resolutions on how we can do any kind of any kind of common sense uh, gun control is sometimes uh, the expression used. And so both sides naturally have this, this suspicion of the other. So when someone presents something, and maybe it's something that looks somewhat innocent on the surface, those on the other side don't see it as innocent. They see it as, as part of a greater agenda. And so this is why, you know, under Obama, there were all these criticisms of, oh, he's secretly trying to take out guns away. Right? This was a widespread belief. And then under Republican presidents, you know, there, there are views that, that go on the opposite extreme, that, oh, he's secretly trying to. And so these groups tend to have views that involve what are the, what's the secret goal of the other. And so this, again, can become insidious to argument because you're not actually examining the beliefs of the other. When someone exposes their belief, you, you have this perception that there's a secret belief behind it. There's a secret agenda behind it. And so I would say we need to be very careful not to ascribe too much agenda or too much um, hostile behavior to the other side. Well, and I think, too, um, gun control is an example of it. Obamacare is another example of it. But the way we term things, the way that we label yes. things, affects how we talk about them, right? So if you're talking about Obamacare, there are people that absolutely hate Obama. And so they'll be like, no, I don't want Obamacare. But then you ask them about the Affordable Care Act, and they're like, oh, yeah, I love that. I think that's great, even though they're the same thing. Or you talk about gun control and it sounds like if, if someone says I'm against gun control no they're not really if anything they're for gun control they're for you knowing how to control your guns yes but, <laughs> but do you see the way that like even the terminology can paint a picture that we don't want to paint 
Um, you see it with the way that the government labels, um, you know, congressmen label um, the um, they label bills. They label the names of acts or, or bills. So they they say the Liberty Act, which I think is one that's up on for debate now, or the Patriot Act, right? So if you're against it, oh, you're against the Patriot Act. Oh, you're against the Liberty Act. Like you're against this idea of liberty that America was founded on, and so. Um, I think we have to be really careful with just taking something for its namesake, but actually digging into what is being represented by that name. No, I think it's an excellent point. And I mean, all the divisive debates, uh, pro-choice versus pro-life, these both sound awesome. Choice is good, life is good. But both have selected language to favor their side of the argument, right? Or, um, you know... The right to healthcare versus the right to preserve the relationship between a doctor and the patient, right? So, so you have both sides consistently framing the debate in such language and in such terms that favors their side. And when this happens, it becomes sometimes difficult to engage in effective argumentation because it's then an issue of, okay, well, well you've already stated the terms in such a way that you assume you know, liberty or freedom is on your side, but I'm stating in such a way that liberty and freedom are on my side. And so can we actually get to the place that we're examining the actual beliefs and the reasons for the beliefs rather than presupposing or question-begging the validity of the belief? Mm. Man, this is such a great conversation. I'm loving this. I am loving this stuff. This is what I'm all about. Okay, so let's, let's, go, let's go back a little bit here because I think I there's a part of this I, I really want to look into, but um, what do you think is the role of the way that we use our sources um, and the way we use our, 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 our arguments um, in our debates and in, in these discussions? Maybe you can say more. <laughs> okay. So like when, when I say, when I say what are the ways we use our sources, right? What are the kind of sources I'm looking for or how can I use sources to wield my argument better? Or, 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 oh, sure. Or I mean, we live in a time where you can Google any topic, find 20 articles pro and 20 articles against, and, you know, maybe 10 pro and 10 against, maybe 10 of those, you know, are just totally fallacious. Just totally, you know, use bad facts, use bad information, use fake quotes, use, you know, make believe or, you know, falsely construed data. Um, but, but even those, there's another, there's another group of articles for and against that are accurate, that they're true in the sense that they don't contain misinformation, but they're so heavily biased, right? And so it's very easy to, to pull from a source that's super biased, that, that's going to present information selectively, going to present it in a way. Um, so, so let me give you an example. Uh, this, this happens uh, more often than, than you may expect. Maybe some poll is taken and it says, you know, do you support... Uh, I'll just go back to my, my silly example. Do you support um, people over the age of 18 being required to wear seatbelts? And say, you know, one third of people say yes, and one third of people say no, and one third of people say, I don't know, right? Like, I'm not sure. Well, what sometimes happens is this information just gets misrepresented. So if you want to make the case that well, there's, there's not very much support for this view that people over the age of 18 should be required to wear seatbelts. You would say only one third of people support the view that those over the age of 18 should be required to wear seatbelts. Well, that's kind of misleading because it suggests that two thirds of people don't have that view, when in reality, a huge segment of the population was undecided. And so a lot of times what happens is these undecideds get, get slipped in the data. Um, another way that, that often happens um, 
just talking more about data, I'm going to geek out with stats a little bit now, is <laughs> a lot of articles biased by, by conflating or confusing causation of correlation. So, so if you've taken a stats class, you know, there's this mantra that's repeated over and over again, which is <laughs> correlation does not imply causation. Yeah. And so uh, let me give you one example. If you graph the data from the last, you know, two decades of the U.S. spending on science and the number of suicides in the U.S., if you graph that data, there was a 99.8% correlation between them. When the U.S. spends more on science, then the number of suicides go up. And when the U.S. spends less on science, the number of suicides goes down. And, and if you present this data in an article, you know, maybe an article that's opposed to increasing the spending on science by, by the U.S. government, you know, you can really give the impression that, that sp spending money on science causes suicide. That there is no reasonable re uh, connection between this at all. There's, there's no evidence that the one causes the other. It just so happens that because we live in this age of big data, you can mine through tons and tons of data and find two things that trend the same way. Or you can take a data set and selectively cherry pick points so that it, it makes your point. And so what happens is when you see something, you're like, well, what are the odds of the two, these two things with trend of 99.8% correlation, right? It's like, that's, that's not, they must, the spending more on science must cause suicide, right? But behind the scenes, someone has selectively cherry picked these two things to, to make their point, right? So there's lots of ways in which data, in which graphs, in which um, any of these things can be misleading, which someone can pull just a single sentence out of a 30-minute speech, right, to, to make it look, uh, mis to, to, to uh, give an impression that may not at all represent the overall 30 minutes of that speech. So there's a lot of ways this can happen. And so I would have two suggestions to, to try and safeguard against this. The one is, as much as often, go to primary sources. Don't just read articles about a speech, actually watch the speech. Don't just uh, read reports about some survey. Go and look at the actual survey results. You know, often these are linked to, or you can just do a quick Google, like Pew Research, and you know, you can find this. Um, don't just look at news sources that you know are necessarily pretty, pretty known to be biased, pretty known to have an ideological slant. But but look for some you know pretty reputable sources. So there's a lot of think tanks, government agencies, etc., that are pretty good and consistently produce you know, data and news that, that does not have this, the same level of bias. And, and then the last one I'll just slip in because I'm a math professor is just take a stats course, take a few math courses, right? Um, I, I have to slip that in because I think the more that you're able to, to learn about how numbers can be distorted and how numbers can, can misrepresent, the more you do that, the more you'll be suspicious when you see that one meme that seems to really support your position and make the other side look ridiculous, you're going to begin looking at it and be like, hmm, I can think of at least 10 ways this meme could have been manufactured to perhaps not fully capture the whole story of, of what's going on here. Mm, man, that was great. I love it. Um, and I agree. I think, you know, I, you could look at my life and you could say that the um, I've, I've lived alone uh, for the last year, a uh, year and three months or four months, and I've been pastoring for the last year and four months. And you could look at that and say one caused the other, but no, not really. They're just two separate areas of my life that happen to coincide. They're two trends that happened at the same time. I live alone just because I'm not dating anyone, not because I'm a pastor, and I'm not a pastor because I live alone. So this idea that 
that things that correlate don't always cause each other or one doesn't always cause the other, I think is really important. And it's super easy to fall into that trap. Um, I can think of times that I've done it. So definitely valid um, and valuable insight there. Um, well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really great. Um, let me just ask you this. Are there any final thoughts that you have for our listeners? Yeah, I think the last thing I would say is we've been talking about argumentation and the goal of argumentation to examine beliefs in community. And, and that's a really noble goal. But I think it's important to recognize that whenever you argue, you're arguing with a human, right? And, and there's more to being human than simply trying to arrive at correct beliefs. I mean, that's important. Argumentation is a great way to do it. But there's a whole lot more to the human experience. And so time and time again, I found that the need to to check myself, to, okay, I'm, I'm having a conversation with someone right now. I think we're in the process of examining beliefs. We're beginning to hit something that's really close to home for this person. You know, things are beginning to open up. And this is not the time to argue. This is the time to listen. This is the time to comfort. This is the time to encourage. This is the time to value my relationship with this person over, you know, pointing out areas that may be wrong. And so I believe that as much as I value argumentation, I argue for the need for argumentation, I, I don't think this should become the dominant theme of one's life, right? There's all these other elements, especially as a Christian, right? As just a human, as a member of society, but all the more as a Christian. If you recognize that, that your goal at the end of the day is not just to win people to your view or arrive at correct beliefs, but it's actually to grow in love with someone and, and to share the love of God with someone and, and invite them to, to experience the love and joy of God as well. If you keep that in mind, I think it would safeguard you against some of these, um, some of these traps of, of simply falling into argumentation all the time and, and missing out on the greater joy of being human. Mm. Well, thank you for that. There is one more thing I want to give you the opportunity to say. You've shared this before with me, and, so I, and, I, and I think it's valuable enough that I just want to, I want, I want to ask you to share it again. But there's an insight on, on um, one of the letters of, of the New Testament in uh, I think it was Second John. Um, yeah, no, I love this. So Second John's the shortest book in the Bible, right? It's it's like uh, thirteen verses or something. It's if you have to memorize a book of the Bible, it's a good one to do. Um, but but you know why is it so short? So this is an interesting bit of trivia. Why did John write such a short letter? And you know you, you might speculate a number of reasons. But one reason which I actually find in the text is at the end of his little short letter. He explains, he says that, you know, I have many things to write to you. This is 2 John verse 12. He says, I have many things to write to you. But he says, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. And maybe the modern equivalence is, you know, I, we, this is a great discussion we're having, maybe on social media, but I'm going to pause. I'm not going to necessarily have this whole discussion right now with my keyboard or typing into my phone. Because John goes on, he says, because I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face that our joy may be full. And that's just an awesome line that, that as valuable as, you know, we could have discussion right now online, there'd be people looking on, there's all these strange influences that, that may change the dynamic of it. So I'm gonna be intentional to make sure I'm gonna come see you face to face, not just for the purpose of proving you wrong or for the purpose of convincing you to my side, but for the purpose of experiencing fullness of joy with you. So I, I love this council. I think that, that if we spend more time talking face-to-face -face with people, we might have a little bit frustration, less frustration on a lot of these topics and a whole lot more joy. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Anthony. This has been an awesome, awesome conversation. And I, and I you know, for those of you who are listening and, and think this was awesome, don't worry. 
Uh, Anthony will be back on. We have a long list uh, of cool topics that we're going to dive into. And so really excited to have you back on soon, Anthony. But thank you so much for your time today uh, to, to talk about the way that we argue with me. I really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Looking forward to being back. So there it is, my interview with Anthony Bosman. I do hope that this challenged your thinking or maybe gave you some ideas about how you can argue better. The main takeaways for me personally were uh, esteeming the other is better than yourself. This is something I've already tried to do, but it's something that I could also always do a better job of. And I actually want to encourage you, if if you think that you're good at all of the things that were discussed or any of the things that 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 we've discussed today. If you think that, yeah, you've got this down or this one area down, I would encourage you to re-examine. Not because I don't believe you, but because I believe it's constantly valuable for us to be re-examining how we do things, to be always asking the question, how can I be better? How can I be a better version of myself? How can I argue better? How can I articulate my point of view better? Etc. So, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Another takeaway for me uh, was some of the fallacies. I, I have seen in myself my tendency to use some of the fallacies that we talked about today. And so uh, maybe this means that I need to slow down a bit when I'm responding. And so for me, that's going to be the biggest thing is I just need to slow down, take a little bit more time, and then respond. But I do hope you found value in this. I know I did, and I'm really excited to have Anthony back on. We're going to be diving into even more deeper topics and deeper discussions in future episodes with him. And so thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.